Live from the American West Coast in Seattle, this is West Coast Radio. Good to be with you. My name is Matthew, and joining me on the program today is Donna Frankhart, author of I've Seen Dead People, Diary of a Deputy Coroner. It was typical for Donna Frankhart to go to bed with her makeup on and hair styled, her clothes nearby and her tactical boots by the door. Seconds count when duty calls, and death doesn't care if it's the middle of the night. I've Seen Dead People, Diary of a Deputy Coroner, gives readers a rare look inside the mind and heart of one of society's most mysterious, and to some macabre, professions. For nearly nine years, Frank Hart was a deputy coroner who worked medico-legal death investigations, which are those involving suspicious, violent, unexplained, or unexpected deaths. Lacking access to structured debriefings, Frank Hart turned to journaling as a way of privately unpacking the profound grief she faced and preserving her own mental well-being. As she did, she found herself in a conundrum of perplexing relationships with both the living and the dead. Let's get right into the show. This is West Coast Radio with Donna Frankhart, author of I've Seen Dead People, Diary of a Deputy Coroner, which you can purchase on Amazon. Joining me on the program is author Donna Frankhart. She is the author of I've Seen Dead People, Diary of a Deputy Coroner. Thank you very much for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Matthew. Oh, you're very welcome. And the one thing that I was going to tell you that I saved for on the air is uh, the show jarred, or the the book, it jarred me. And when I read it, normally I always say, okay, dedicate an hour of study time per day to who the guest is coming up week of. And Monday, when I pulled your book up and I started to read it, this is the honest to goodness truth. I read it all the way through because I couldn't leave. I couldn't leave the story. And what I mean by jarred is I didn't want to say I enjoyed the book because I didn't feel joy the whole time. I felt entertained the whole time and I felt intensely the whole time, which to me is what makes something worthy of content. Does it make you feel intensely the whole time? Not worthy of content, but that's what makes something excellent. If something in media makes you feel intensely all the way through, then I think you've done your job as a creator of media. That's just my opinion. So that's how I felt when consuming your book. I felt intensely all the way through. Sometimes my stomach was churning. Sometimes I was almost crying because of how touching the moment was. But all the way through, I was feeling some very, very real things that I don't think a lot of people feel a lot because most of the living kind of pushes death out of our, out of our minds. You know what I mean? Yes. And thank you. I did write it with a lot of emotion. Uh, I poured my heart into those words because it was my way of debriefing from all of the sadness and the gore and the grief that I was surrounded by for so long. And so I felt like writing this on paper was helping me to process and compartmentalize what I was dealing with because it's it's not a subject that you can just sit down with family and friends and talk about. As the title of the book says, you were a deputy coroner uh, in the Midwest for almost 10 years and just under nine. And 
Uh, I want to take this from the top. So number one is why did you get into this? And uh, you started off, you were a struggling single mother working in the travel industry and it wasn't really cutting it. And that's kind of how the story takes off. So number one, with the travel industry, what was going on there? What did you do in the travel industry? Well, to be honest with you, and I, I have been in the trap, had been in the travel business for over 30 years in corporate travel. And I continued to do that on a full-time basis uh, up until the early, I shouldn't say up until, but until the early 2000s, I was going through a divorce. I had two young sons and they would be with their dad every other weekend. So I wanted to do something that would be constructive and possibly help the community when my sons were gone over the weekend. And so there was a uh, victim crisis response team that was in the area that volunteered and worked with five police departments. And so I uh, applied for that position. I was interviewed, I was accepted and went through training for about nine or 10 months. And then for about a year, I was a victim crisis responder, which is, as I mentioned, a volunteer basis. And it, you would, um, you would go on calls that ranged from anything or uh, from death to uh, domestic d disputes or domestic um, domestic cases. And we would go there more for the emotional support of the uh, family members or the people involved. While the police were doing what they needed to do, we would be supporting the families. If it, if it had been a death, we would. Well, give me one second, them. if you would. I want to. I want to. I want to take it back to the travel industry, just because I'm curious. Uh, the travel industry is that dead now because everybody can just go on like Expedia.com or whatever and do it themselves. Is there any need for a travel agent anymore? Travel agents, well, right now, due to the pandemic, uh, because of the pandemic, and there was such a hit on the industry, as you know, and the airlines, I did end up losing my job last, I was uh, furloughed last August and then lost my job in October. It's my understanding, the company that I worked for, we had like 500 employees and they went down to 10 mm -hmm. because, of course, as you know, the travel people weren't traveling um, the European countries, they started closing the doors to Americans. And so I worked always with corporate clients, business travelers, and they were doing most of their business over Zoom. So people were not flying. Companies were banning their, their employees from traveling. Uh, I understand that the travel business is starting to pick up a little bit, but, um, I have, I do have a lot of former uh, co-workers that are still unemployed and there's just nothing out there in the travel business. It, wow. It's, um, as a matter of fact, there's a, a Facebook page that is for people that are for people in the travel industry. And it's actually quite sad because there's so many that are in their fifties and sixties that are just a little bit too young for retirement but then are scrambling to figure out what new career can they start up with at this stage in their life because, you know, they still have to continue working. So I, I know travel is slowly picking up, but uh, it's still in very dire straits is my understanding. 
you were scared to death of death, like a lot of people are. You were afraid of dead people, and you kind of – that's justified because early on you had – kind of a lot of violent, not a lot, but more than most violent experiences highlighted, I would think, by your uncle being murdered. Can you tell me a little bit about your uncle's murder story? Um, my uncle was, uh, he had gone to a southern state to visit his daughter, my cousin, and he was found uh, strangled and beaten in a hotel room. And they did find that uh, his vehicle and his his wallet, his money. So I don't know what the circumstances were, honestly, as far as why he was beaten to death. What, you know, why, because the money was still there and the vehicle was there. So I don't know if he was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. If I don't know. I'm not sure. Somebody followed him. And then I had another uncle that... Uh, my mother was from Ireland, and so my aunt, her sister, and her brother-in-law, my uncle, they were going to be immigrating or emigrating over to the United States. And my uncle was afraid to come over because he thought that the United States was like, you know, the wild, wild west, where there was just too much violence and killings and, and you know, he was afraid to come over. So my aunt came with my cousin and they lived here for about 10 years without him. He just, they could not get him over. Well, he finally did decide and agree to move over here. And within the first, and he was a very gentle man. He's very a real, you know, like the suit and tie kind of gentleman and very um, gentlemanly and, and quiet and very respectful but he was uh, downtown Chicago and he was mugged and stabbed for $30. And they did, they did uh, catch the, the guy that did it to him, which was, you know, he didn't know who the person was, but it was just a random robbing rob robbery and mugging. And he lived for a few years, but he was a recluse. I mean, he stayed in the home and he was on oxygen and, you know, his value of life really was, it was depleted after that. And then eventually he passed away. So yes, there's, there's been violence in the family. And did that prepare you at all? Did that lead you into, okay, maybe I want to kind of investigate doing something like this volunteer crisis responder opportunity popped up and one of the tasks of the job was a lot of times you would have to help move bodies. Most people would go, okay, I've seen this happen in my past. I don't want anything to do with death, I would think. And there are some people though who are exposed to it and go, I think because of my experiences, if I go into a career path that's similar, I can do a lot of good for people. What was your thought process like? At the time uh, when I did get into uh, the position, the victim crisis respond, responder, at the time, I just felt um, I wanted to do, I wanted to be there for people that needed someone that was empathetic and had compassion. I'm not sure if it was because I felt broken from going through the divorce. And so I thought by helping other peoples that were in vulnerable positions that it would maybe um, help me 
in a way. And in looking back, I do think that from what I went through with the uh, violence in my family, that yes, maybe subconsciously, I just wanted to be there for others that went through that because the funeral itself, of course, because of the nature of the death, it was a very difficult funeral and very sad. So I, I do think it was just a combination of everything. It was, yes, I wanted to help other people because of the tragedies that my family had dealt with, uh, the loss of my marriage. And so, and then with my sons being gone every other weekend, I could have either gotten into taking up a hobby or, you know, other people will start going out on the town and, you know, painting the town red. But <laughs> For me, I just wanted to help other people. And through being a, a crisis responder, I did get to know one of the coroners in one of the counties, and he had complimented me on how I was handling the families and that I was able to, I knew how to, I knew how to handle uh, the emotions of all of the people that I was dealing with. I mean, I wasn't a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and it was more on a, you know, on a more generic kind of helping, um, helping people. And I had told him that I was very fast fascinated in forensics. And if he ever needed another deputy and he would consider that, please give me a call, which he did about 10 months later. And he said that if I was still inter interested, I could follow him on cases. And then he was going, he would be able to see how I would handle these deaths and if I, if I could handle it emotionally, psychologically, physically. And so I then went on all these calls with him. But wait, your first call though, your very first call, you got a flat and looking back on it, did you, did you take it as a sign? You know, you're on your way to your very first call to suicide call and you get a flat tire. Did anything go through your mind and go, okay, maybe this isn't for me? Well, actually at the time I thought to myself, oh, here we go. I really want to do this. I'm the adrenaline, the level of adrenaline going through my system is unbelievable. I am petrified out of my mind, but I, I have to do this. But am I going to, is this going to jeopardize the potential to work with this with this coroner because what were the chances of having a flat tire that night it could have been a message but then again I'm saying. I do believe though that in my mind that I was and I've been told by mediums also that I was doing the work of God because I was someone in a position that had as I mentioned before the empathy the compassion to help others in their time of need in their darkest hours. And uh, to if, if there was in any way that I could give them comfort, even to a small degree, and as I would say, or we would say, we were the voice of the dead when they could no longer speak. Because if they lost their life, their life at the hands of another, it was our responsibility to investigate and... Um, you know, discover whether it was a suspicious death if if it if the life ended at the hands of another. So my belief was stronger that it was something that I was meant to do 
versus maybe you shouldn't do this. <laughs> so if, if you determine this is not foul play, is there any type of system where a family can challenge and say, you know, I don't think that Donna, I don't think that Donna Frankhart got this correct. I'd like a second opinion. Is there any type of thing that, you, uh, or is it if a coroner or deputy coroner says, okay, this is not foul play or it is foul play, that's the final deciding word. A family does have the right to request an autopsy if the county or the coroner, I should say the coroner, decides that there is no foul play. If the family does not like the decision that the police, well, the body is under the possession of the coroner. A coroner is an elected official. A deputy coroner is hired and sworn in. I'll just refer to the deputy coroner because that's what I was. I was hired mm -hmm. and sworn in. So the deputy coroner has possession of the body. The police have uh, control over the crime scene. If we rule out that there's been any foul play, but the family just doesn't believe it and thinks that there's, you know, that just can't be, they don't, they're not accepting the answer, the, the determination, they do have the right to request an autopsy it would be at their expense. Now, I have not been a deputy coroner since 2015, and at that time, it was between three to $5,000 out of pocket to the family if they wanted to have an autopsy. What if you can't afford it? And then there wouldn't be an autopsy. Wow. Because if the county has determined and ruled out that if there's any foul play, because it could be a medical, right? It could have been a, a death due to medical reason. And the family has the right, or even if they think that it, you know, no, I don't think that I think something happened to him. Somebody did something to him. Okay. So they can have the autopsy. If they can't afford it, then there would not be, the county is not going to pay for it if they've already ruled it out. The county would, or the deputy would also draw fluids for toxicology, which would be either blood, urine, or vitreous. And vitreous is out of the eye. So that it could be ruled out uh, for any types of drugs that could have been in the system. And you said that was pretty darn often, right? It happened a lot? Yes. We, uh, not we, but I should say the county that I worked in, uh, we had a lot of drug overdoses. And sadly, a lot of people do overdose on fentanyl patches. I'm not even going to say in the different ways that they've ingested them because I don't want the listener to get any ideas. I'm not mm -hmm. saying, you know, that people are going to go out and do that, but I'd prefer not to. You said that the hardest part in your book is notifying the families. And of course, that's not very difficult to believe. Uh, do you cry in front of the families or do you hold it in until you're all, all alone? I would always be very professional, compassionate, but very professional while I was doing the, or we were doing the investigation. Once the investigation was completed, let's say if it was in a, at a home death, I'm not talking about if there was a fatality, um, cause the family's hopefully not going to be where the, you know, where the, the scene was cause it's a crime scene until the investigation Every death is considered a crime scene until the investigation has has been completed. But let's just say, so if I was on a death call and I'm with the family uh, after the investigation has been completed and the, and the loved one or the decedent, I should say, 
has been taken to the morgue or has gone off for the down for autopsy, I would sit with the family and then I would actually talk to them about their loved one and ask questions like personal questions like, did they like to go fishing or how many years were you married? Because I wanted them to know that their loved one was not, for me, was not just a body laying on the ground or laying, you know, dead. It was their loved one. And every decedent was someone's mother, father, brother, sister. Someone loved that person and they, you know, they had a life, they had memories. And so I always respected that. But yes, I would sit with the families and and I think they really appreciated that. And I could, I'd kind of feel them out depending, you know, the age and just how you never know what uh, people's reactions are going to be to a tragedy or a death. Some of them just wanted a hug. Others might extend their hand and, you know, want you to sit next to them and just hold their hand and talk about that loved one for a few minutes and, and if tears did come to my, I mean, I wouldn't all out ball, you know, I wouldn't break down, but I, I would have tears streaming down my face. Absolutely. Because it was very sad. It was very emotional. Um, but when I really did the crying, it was usually when I was on my own in my room, because I try not to show too much um, sadness and emotion in front of my sons, because I didn't want to rob them of having a happy household. I mean, I didn't go around pretending that I wasn't surrounded by death and they kind of knew they knew what I was doing, but they didn't know in depth what I was actually experiencing and seeing other than the spirits because they saw those too. But um, yes, usually I tried to keep a lot of it inside and then I'd have so many people that knew me uh, family, friends would say, oh my God, Donna, you're you're so strong. I don't know how you do that. And I'm so oh, thank you. But they didn't realize that I was crumbling inside and I was hiding, you know, I was keeping it from, I didn't want people to know that it was actually affecting me as much as it was. And that's how I started writing. So it definitely impeded your ability to enjoy your life in the day to day. I think it did. Yes, I, it did. But um, you know, it was maybe wrong of me to think this way, but I just believed that I, I was helping others and it was, um, it was the right thing to do. It was, it, it made my heart feel good, even though in the long run, it was actually, it emotionally did affect me. And I mean, to this day, I, I jump when, when I, there's, you know, loud noises or I hear sirens, there, there's a lot of scars from that. But, but then it also did, although I was like this before being a deputy, I, I always embraced life, but I was very, very aware and in tune with life and everything around me and, and what was important in life, which was not so much monetary things, but your loved ones, um, you would could find well you wouldn't see me i'd do this when people weren't weren't around where i would just if it was raining i would i would uh, stand under a ledge and i would just marvel at the rain you know watch the raindrops coming down and take in the scent of the fresh earth and things like that i never took for granted the simple things in life so there was good that came out of it as well 
one story in the book that really stuck out to me was uh, the first call that you ever had to work on. And the first call that you had to work on was, I'll call it the faceless man. Now, this quote I want to read to the audience, uh, this is one of the stories that made my stomach turn, to be completely honest with you. The quote is, I will never forget the sound that it made, similar Mm -hmm. to stepping into mud in your boots and trying to pull your foot out as the mud suctions the boot. So that is describing you having to put a man's face back together. And this man was uh, moving into his late 40s. He was recently divorced, and he Mm -hmm. felt like he had no other options, and that's why he took his life. And when you all had found him, he had shot himself in the face with a rifle, and he was missing his face. Yes, Um, that was – Yes, my boss, the coroner, had uh, we had pulled his driver's license out for identification, which happened to be on his pocket. And of course, as mentioned in the book, the um, condition of his what was left, which wasn't much. And so my boss said, um, try to put his face together as well as you can so we can see if we can at least get a profile. And that is what really stands out in my mind was the sound of taking my hands on, on his head where what he had and trying to push what there was together. And that, that I will never forget that sound. It was like a suction. Can you, I mean, can you visualize what like a, like that, Mm -hmm. a suction. I remember you highlighted that chapter was basically a lot of people take their lives because of very temporary problems. They don't wait it out till they can make it to the other side. Um, and, you know, I thought that that was such an interesting thing, especially now when so many are dealing with mental health struggles and they're just battling to try to make it out of bed every day. A lot of these problems, they're temporary. And uh, whoever, who, whoever needs to hear this, you don't want to create, like you said, a permanent solution to a very temporary issue, no matter how hard it could be. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's so sad because, and there were so many suicides that I uh, handled. And like you said, they're, they're temporary problems that were just so, so overwhelming for that individual that they just didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel. And it's so sad. And that's like a debate that uh, one could, people could have whether, is is do you of course you feel you feel sad for the person that has ended their life but they've ended their life and their suffering has ended but now their family will suffer Mm -hmm. the loss and asking why and you know what could they have done um i had that discussion one time with a family member At, at the time i'd said i you know, I wish they hadn't committed suicide. It was a friend of the family. I, you know, I wish they hadn't committed suicide because it wasn't right. It was, it was unfair to this person's spouse. And, and then my family members said uh, that I was wrong in looking at it that way because this particular person was suffering. It was a medical, it was like they'd gone through so many surgeries that had to do with the back and there was just no letting up person was in pain 24 seven and just couldn't see living any longer. I mean, and he was, he was younger. He was in his forties. And so that, that's a tough one, you know, cause I can see both sides. It's, it's just sad all around. Yeah. That's one. You, you can't make the call there. It's not yeah. for us to make the call. It's for that person. You got to 
that's it. You know, that's all you can say. It's a sad situation. Yeah. There's a number of stories that uh, I want to talk about, but while we're on the subject of somebody who had taken their life, I'm curious, do men and women typically kill themselves in different ways? Now, you hear things in the classroom, you learn things in the classroom, but I'm not sure if they're always true. I learned in psych class a long time ago that typically women don't shoot themselves or something like that because uh, I, I have no idea why, but men typically shoot themselves more. Women do a different method. Do you notice between men, women, do you notice different ways that they take their life? Yes. Men, like you said, men uh, would use weapons, guns, whereas women were more drug overdoses. Why do you think, why do you think that was? I'm wondering if it's because uh, more men were hunters and owned guns than women do or did. I can't say now, you know, because more of both genders are owning guns. But I, I just think maybe because men were always handling guns more so, and maybe I shouldn't say this and there's going to be some uproar on that, but... Ask her them. Pardon me? I said, screw, screw whoever wants to create the uproar. Just say what you got to say. Oh. Who cares? <laughs> that that more more men or guys owned guns or own guns because they hunt or they're just into shooting or, you know, rain, going shooting at ranges. Women would prefer taking a medication, a pill. It's not as violent. And they think they're going to go off to sleep, but in all actuality, it's my understanding that uh, you get very, very sick before mm. um, it takes your life. And, I, and again, there's so many different ways and pills that that's just kind of a generic response that I'm saying that you get very sick is my understanding before your heart stops. That's very interesting because I know that one thing that people say to those who have a family member who's overdosed on an opiate is they say that they went peacefully in their sleep. Now, I'd imagine most people who use pills to kill themselves intentionally would do it with a mixture of alcohol and opiates. I'm not positive about that, but I always thought that with opiates, it would be a peaceful transition. Now, of course, you're going to throw up, but by that point, you're so high and out of it that your brain's not even telling your, or your, brain's not even telling your body to breathe. Uh, I, I mm -hmm. did not know that it was an uncomfortable experience to overdose on that. Uh, and again, I'm assuming you're talking about opiates here. I, I don't know. I was actually more talking about, like, well, maybe I've misspoken. I, I really have only been told that, yes, they get violently ill. But what you're saying makes sense because if they're so high and they're so out of it, it's really not going to register. They're not thinking straight at that point anyhow. Yes. Yes. Hopefully. It's just um, that I think that would take a, well, and of course, if they become unconscious, then they're not going to be aware of their body shutting down. Whereas, and there, there was a case once that uh, I attended the autopsy and it was a, a male and he shot himself. He put, he shot himself twice. The first time, and that's through his face, the first time didn't do the job, and he was so determined to end his life that he actually put the gun back up to his head and did it again. I don't think that's very, I don't think that happens very often. I could be wrong, but the pathologist was telling me that that was a little unusual. 
when you see somebody like a drowning victim or somebody who's been dead to the point where they start to liquefy, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, you, there was a one story about somebody who had been face down for so long that their actual face had changed shape. And I'm very squeamish around dead things. Even I, I have a sort of phobia of caskets. I don't like to see caskets and, um, I don't, I don't do open casket funerals or anything like that. I can't handle it. It, it'll really, really mess with me mm-hmm. for quite a while. I'm very sensitive to that stuff. And I wonder, do you get scared when you see a face of somebody who's their face is bloated from being in the water for a week? Or uh, does does that type of the gnarly sights of what goes along with your job? Did it scare you? Uh, it was very overwhelming, but again, you go into that, that mindset of the investigation. And then once the investigation is done, you have to try to not let it overwhelm your thoughts because yes, it can be very scary. You have to be, you have to be quite strong to be able to do that job because of not just what you're seeing, you're also touching when you're touching death, it puts it on a whole different level because now it's personal. Now you're surrounded by death. You're smelling death. You're seeing death. You're feeling death. You're picking up parts of a body. Um, So you have to, you have to be a, a strong person. I'm not saying I was strong. I was strong through the years, but it, um, it really took a toll on me. Now I'm not talking about the smell of death. We'll get to that in a moment, but as far as the smells associated with your job, with the job of being around dead people, sometimes people who have been dead for quite a while, can you describe that to me? Like some of the some of the things that you have to overcome smell wise, because you know, as I was reflecting upon what you do, your job really many of the senses, the five senses that we experience on a day to day basis for you, it's like crank them all the way up to eleven. You know, yeah. uh, it's very much a job where you have to deal with senses being really heightened. And that's difficult, especially when it comes to smells. So what types of this stuff are you smelling on a day-to-day basis doing your job? Well, death does have a very distinctive smell. Once you've smelled death, you'll never forget that smell. And so I always, with my supplies, would have a Vicks, Vicks VapoRub. Do you know what that is? Mm-hmm, you know, like of course. When, when you have a cold, right, and you put it under your nose, you're under your nose, and then we'd have the hazmat suits if we needed or masks. But uh, there were many times that I was gooping Vicks under my nostrils, and a lot of the police, some of the police would also have liquid peppermint, and so we would use that to try to mask the smells. If you asked me to describe what death smells like. I don't know if I could even describe it. It's like you're, it's hard to describe like uh, rotting flesh. Like sickly sweet. Sickly sweet. Yes. Kind of. What, what about the smell of, of death not associated with rotting bodies and stuff like that? You always said that there's a, there's a distinctive smell of just death, the death itself. Um, mm-hmm. Did you that that was a different thing than the rotting bodies and everything? That's not even necessarily a bad smell. It's just a unique smell, right? It's a you right. It's a unique smell. I can't even describe it. Uh, I can't. It's like a sweet sour. It's hard. It's it's a distinctive smell. It's not like anything else you've ever smelled or that I can compare to. 
and you would once you've smelled it, you'll never forget. So if you ever smell it again, you know immediately, yep, that that that's a dead body. And it's although I haven't really smelled um dead animals that have been laying for a while, so I can't say if there's a comparison between a dead animal. Oh no, see what I was wondering was in the book, I didn't know whether or not there were two different types of death smells that you described. So in, in one part of the book, you're talking about, of course, the smells of a putrid body, uh, a rotting body or something like that. But I thought also that you were saying there was a smell of death. It's not even if there's a dead body around, just the smell. I, I thought it was not, not like a supernatural thing, but I thought you were saying that the dead have a smell. Um, they do. They do. Okay. You know what I'm getting at then? Yes. And you know what? I'm sorry. I just, it's, it's so hard to describe aside from, like you said, yes, uh, rotting bodies that like rotting flesh, there is a smell of death. If you've ever walked into a funeral home, other than the smell of lilies or the flowers, you can smell that. Or if you have, um, cremains, somebody that you've, that's been cremated and you have possession of the ashes there is actually a smell that comes off of those ashes that it's almost like a sweet, it's a mixture of sweet and pungent that is unlike any other smell. And it's very, like I said, very distinct. There are different, yeah, there, there are death. There are different smells of death, depending on the type of death, but a dead body does have a smell that comes off of it, or even when there isn't an actual body, but a spirit, there's a smell. And I want to talk about that a little more in, as you continue through the book, you start to talk about your time as an office manager in a funeral home. And I want to get to that in just a moment. But the last thing I want to speak about before we sort of leave behind uh, some of your day-to-day workings as a deputy coroner is there was a case that really struck my fancy. And it was a really tragic case of a story where you have this nine-year-old boy and he's fighting over like an Xbox controller or something with his cousin or brother, what have you. But uh, two similar aged young people and this nine-year-old boy kind of gives the other kid a little nick on the eye. And next thing you know, This boy has gone to his room, and as you're told, he puts a belt around his neck, he ties it up to something high, and he leans over on his knees, and he's found dead. So the parents call that in. And you were saying, hey, um, if somebody can't breathe, and they're in control of whether or not they can breathe, even if they're really upset or really emotional, eventually they're going to give in, and they're going to allow themselves to breathe again. A person can't choke themselves, in other words. So- why was that why was that case not determined to be a criminal investigation? Well, I wasn't the deputy coroner on that case and it was another county, so I really don't know what the reasons for were for that and because I was not on the case, I wasn't going to be questioning or stepping on anyone's toes because I was wasn't involved with it, so it wasn't legally my place and the funeral home um had questioned and I don't I don't know what the answers were to whomever was working the case. Like I said, I, I didn't get involved in it. I was at a an, I was an office manager 
in that funeral home. And I knew that that was not something legally that I needed to stick my nose in. Okay. So when, just as knowing what you know, accumulating all your data over cases that you've done as a, as a deputy coroner, is it possible that maybe um, his the blood on his jugulars, they were cut off from his brain, it caused him to pass out, and after a while of not getting blood, that's what killed him? Is that probably what it was? Or, or do you think that maybe it, there was a lazy deputy coroner there? Oh, boy. I, I can't answer that question legally or... Oh, okay. I, because that, yes, I, that's just not something that I really can touch on. I don't know. I was not involved with the case. So, well, you uh, did touch on it in the book though, because you, you gave your opinion in the book though. Well, I gave my opinion in the book, but as far as asking what I believe was the, uh, what happened, what transpired, I, without seeing the reports, and talking with the ones that did investigate, I really only went as far as my opinion in the book. Yeah. The question that it strikes is, how many murders out there went unsolved simply because of the fact that a deputy coroner wasn't good at their job or, or was feeling lazy? Like, I mean, how many situations out there could a murder have gone unsolved because a coroner said, okay, you know what? I don't think this is that suspicious. It makes me think because really when it comes to a dead body, a crime involving a dead body, justice starts with you. That's something that I learned with the book. You know, it, it really begins with the determination that you're going to give. And I'm thinking, okay, well, are there political reasons out there? Are there um, reasons of, hey, the day's almost up. I don't want to fill out the paperwork. Are those types of situations coming into play that obstruct the justice of somebody who's been killed. How many murders out there do you think happened just because the deputy coroner went, nope, this wasn't, this wasn't suspicious at all. I don't, I really, that's something I'm not touching on. I'm sorry, Matthew. That's a discussion I don't want to go to, but you have to remember that there is law enforcement and a coroner. It's not just one person working an investigation. So, oh, so the cops are, they also help in making that determination. If it's a crime scene, the body is under the control of the coroner. If there's anything suspicious with the body, the, the police are working the crime scene. So it's everybody in unison. It's a fine tuned, you know, it's a, everybody's, everybody plays their part in, in, in the investigation. It's not just, I mean, ultimately, uh, ultimately the, coroner makes the decision on whether they feel there's anything suspicious or not, but I would believe that between the police and the coroner, they're going to work this together. Yeah, that's a lot of power. Um, and you, you'll have to forgive my reactions to this just because, um, you know, it's something new for me. So it's tender, but that's a lot of power for one person. It's, I mean, I, again, I'm not going to make you comment on it, but you would imagine that there is some room, at least for major corruption within the corona, within the coroner community. Um, but uh, I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. It certainly I is would very hope not. I would hope that the coroners are in that position to um, investigate and rule out that somebody's life has not ended in because of the hands of someone else. 
Because the thing is, if they don't do their job properly, there's the potential for ending up uh, in a legal uh, quandary. You know, legally, they could be in a lot of trouble. There's So there's oversight for a, a coroner. You're asking if there's oversight. I'm hoping that there isn't oversight. But those, again, are legal questions you'd probably more want to talk to an attorney about or um, that's just subjects that I really would rather not touch on. Fair enough. We'll move on. At a certain point in her deputy coroner career, Donna also took on a job as an office manager at a funeral home, and that's when things really get spooky. So one morning, uh, as you are working in a funeral home as an office manager, uh, you walked to the back of a building to your boss's office to give her some paperwork, and as you're walking to that office in the front of the building, you're in your office and you're walking throughout the building of this funeral home, and then your your boss screams, "Did you see him?" And you go, "Did I see who?" And she says, "It's a man. He he had blonde hair. He wore jeans and had a light colored shirt on. He was right behind you." Uh, so the funeral home has bells on the doors in the front and the back, so nobody could have walked in. It was just you two in that building, and that starts off a lot of really weird and bizarre situations that take place at this funeral home. Can you tell me about a few of those situations? Um, well, first off, the funeral home was like a hundred-year-old building. It was an old English Tudor, and it had been a funeral home for probably a hundred years. And so there had been a lot of dead people that had uh, gone through that building. So there were a lot of things that would happen, like orbs, or that, as we discussed earlier, the smell of death would come into a room um, we would hear voices that uh, conversations and there was, or I'd be alone in the building and I'd hear a conversation. And I think that maybe there were some directors in, in, you know, one of the rooms and I'd go to check and there'd be absolutely no one in the room. So it was, there was a lot of activity and I actually had someone recently that also worked at the funeral home when I was there telling me that she brought a friend who connects with um, the afterlife into this particular funeral home, not, I'd say not too long ago, quite recently. And he walked right into one of the uh, viewing rooms. He put his hand up on the wall and she said he started shaking uncontrollably and he pretty much darted out of the building and he told her that he ne he would never walk inside that funeral home again, and he wouldn't discuss with her what he had felt or what he had seen. And I thought to myself, well, God, I'm glad you didn't tell me that when I was working at the funeral home. <laughs> no wonder I, no wonder I always had the hair at the back of my neck standing up. I actually got to the point where I was wearing a cross around my neck. And when I would open up in the morning, there were days when, like in the winter, you know, where it's, it's, it's dark in the morning and it gets dark earlier in the early evening. And so I'd be the one to open up the funeral home in the morning and it would be pitch dark. 
And so I would walk in and I'd have to turn the lights on in all of these rooms. And some, you know, there'd be times when I'd turn into a room and there'd be a uh, an occupied casket in there because it was set up for a funeral that day. But I would walk in and I would just say, okay, I don't mean to upset anyone here. I'm just here to do my job. And I'd make my way to the office and hope that, I, you know, nobody was going to talk back to me when I was alone in the building. And there were some angel circumstances too, right? You have a couple of angel feathers in your possession. Yes, that was so beautiful. I, it was again a morning that I went in, I uh, opened up the building and I was um, turning all of the lights on. And then I walked past where the, um, actually through one of the arrangement rooms, because I found feathers a couple of times. It was in the middle of summer, so it wouldn't have been somebody's down jacket. And uh, no one else was in the building. And I was cutting through one of the um, arrangement rooms. And there was a little white feather stuck in the in the carpet. And so I picked it up. And there was, uh, again, no funeral directors were there. And as the funeral directors started coming in that morning, I asked each one if they'd been there since the day before, if they'd brought anyone in. And they hadn't. I'd locked up the place the night before and gone through each of those rooms and there was no feather in the carpet when I walked through uh, closing it the night before. And that morning there was the feather there. And so that was very, that was really a special feeling because I figured it was either someone's guardian angel or perhaps it was my own guardian angel. And then there was another time that uh, a, dis a body was brought in and there was a room where the bodies were kept and it was called the care center. And I had walked past and it was always locked. So you had to have the code to get in. And I had walked past the care center and there was nothing, you know, nothing out of place. And when I uh, was coming back that way, there was a little, there was a white feather outside of the door of the care center. When, Things like this happen to you with enough frequency. Does it kind of, at some, in some way, comfort you in the fact that okay, if these things are happening to, happening to me, then I know that there's a God. I know there's some place I go after I die. Is there comfort in experiencing paranormal situations like that? Absolutely. I used to, as we talked about earlier in the program, used to fear death. And from working as a deputy coroner and experiencing spirits and uh, angel feathers, my son's witnessing spirits that had followed me home, I no longer fear death because I do honestly believe that we leave our bodies behind, but our souls and energy will continue on. And I also did care for my, my mom the last five months of her life. She moved in with me and then I cared for her. And so I watched her as she actively died, as she was active, they call it active dying. And it was very beautiful. Uh, I could feel the ancestors around us. She started talking to them. It was a very peaceful and uh, beautiful transition for her. So I do not fear death. I also have a friend that experienced a near, had a near death experience after surgery. 
And he, like many others, if you read about near-death experiences, talks about the bright light and the warmth, and it was so beautiful, it's like almost indescribable. And he had the same experience, and he said he doesn't fear death at all. He said he actually looks forward to it because it was so beautiful. When it happened to him, he didn't want to come back. But then he came back through that tunnel back, you know, it wasn't his time to go. So I do not fear death at all because I do believe that we will all be united again um, and that your loved ones that have passed on are there to help you transition. I'm not trying to change anybody's mind or talk them into it or to believe me, but I'm just speaking from my experience and these are my beliefs. Uh, I can't deny it. I've, I've just seen too much of it and witnessed too much to ignore that there is more. You spent a better part of the decade working with the dead. What has that experience with the dead taught you about the meaning of life? That life is a gift that no one should take advantage of because Every breath that you take, uh, you never know between your date of birth and your date of death. You don't know when your expiration date is. And so I say in between that DOB and the DOD, it's a blank canvas and paint it as bright as you can and embrace life and enjoy life and Never take for granted uh, just how blessed you are that you have another day, that you're waking up another morning. Donna Frankhart, uh, you are the author of I've Seen Dead People, Diary of a Deputy Coroner. I thank you so much for your time here. The final question is, where are you now after having written this book? I know you've got a screenplay on the way, and what does the future look like for you? That's a good question, Matthew. Uh, yes, I've been very busy with um, with the book just being published and there is going to be the, well, the screenplay adaption for feature film. So I'm very excited about that. I've got, uh, we've got Gary Revel, who is the, um, owner of Jongler books, film, and he's a songwriter. He's the producer of this, um, feature film as, and script writer, as is Frank Burmaster. He's a script writer, script writer as well. And then Jeff Ohm is the producer director, and he's he's very well known in the film industry. Did a lot of uh, very um, big films like The Titanic, The Revenant, um, Shrek, Fifth Element, many films. And so I've got a great team of people. I'm blessed that there's going to be a, a movie made of it. I'm not sure where I'm going to go from here because of my travel business. The my travel career ending and I'm no longer doing the deputy work. So I'm Matthew. I'm not sure. I am also uh, writing the second, the sequel, the next book. So I've been busy doing that. And I think I'm going to write for a while. I think you should. I think you should write for a while. Um, that's, that's a good hunch to go on. I think that's all I can say. I've already complimented you enough on what I think you can uh, provide the world as an author. Uh, I've said what I'm going to say in that regard. I think that you should trust that hunch. 
I thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Pleasure talking with you as well. And that was the show. Thank you very much to Donna Frankhart, author of I've Seen Dead People, Diary of a Deputy Coroner. This was a thoroughly original book, a thoroughly original interview, and I'm very glad to have shared this experience with you. In the meantime, check out the book. You can buy it on Amazon.com, and I really do recommend it. Live from the American West Coast in Seattle, this is West Coast Radio. Good night.